This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. For the last several decades, professional historians have moved away from what is often called the great man theory of history. That was the understanding that history is best understood through individuals, their, their lives, their characters, and the decisive events of their day. Now, no doubt, there are significant individuals who have shaped the course of history. And when we look at individuals such as Abraham Lincoln, we come face to face with the fact that they have grown in proportion to our imagination to such an extent that we cannot understand who we are, who Americans are, and what it means to struggle with so many of the vital issues of our day without coming to terms with Abraham Lincoln. There is a legion of books about Abraham Lincoln, a library of works interpreting Abraham Lincoln and his times, but few books, I think, will rival a new one. Professor Eric Foner has written The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. Rarely does a book take us into the most important questions about biography, morality, history, and our times. Eric Foner is DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. He's one of the nation's most recognized and influential historians. He is one of the few persons to have held the positions as president of the Organization of American Historians, the American Historical Association, and the Society of American Historians. He's the author of the new book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. Professor Foner, welcome to Thinking in Public. Uh, Very nice to be talking to you. In an article you wrote in The Nation magazine last year, you said this, Abraham Lincoln has always provided a lens through which Americans examine themselves. He has been described as a consummate moralist and a shrewd political operator, a lifelong foe of slavery and an inveterate racist. Politicians from conservatives to communists, civil rights activists to segregationists have claimed him as their own. How in the world do we come to understand who exactly Abraham Lincoln was? Well, you know, as as I said in that quote, uh, everybody seems to want to have Lincoln on their side, you know, so uh, 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 and uh, like many, uh, you know, like the Bible, perhaps people find selective quotations, which they can pull out to uh, support their current, uh, you know, particular point of view. Um, but I think, you know, it, what I try to do in this book is to really show the evolution of Lincoln's thought. In other words, one of the things is Lincoln changed significantly over the course of his life. So if you want to show Lincoln as a racist, you can do that by pulling out quotations from the 1850s where he says, I'm not in favor of black people voting or having citizenship. And yet if you just do that, you miss the fact that by the end of his life, he was advocating black voting, at least of of, of a limited kind, and had uh, moved very far along the way toward a greater uh, acceptance of racial equality. And so, you know, and, and you can do that on his views about slavery also. So in a sense, the very fact that Lincoln evolves and grows over the course of his life is what enables people to pick out one moment that they happen to like and say, well, that is the real essential Lincoln. In your preface to the book, Our Lincoln, you edited just two years ago, you begin with a citation from Frederick Douglass, who said in 1876, no man can say anything that is new of Abraham Lincoln. You point out that Frederick Douglass went on to contradict his own statement, uh, even in his following words. But then you say this, more words have been written about Lincoln than any historical personage except Jesus Christ. 
why is there such a fascination with Lincoln? Beyond even the confusion and uh, and even debate about who he was, what is there about Lincoln and his times that just necessarily draws us in? Well, that is exactly right. Uh, you know, somebody told me there are maybe eight to 10,000 books about Abraham Lincoln. I think the thing is that, of course, first of all, as we know, Lincoln was president during the greatest crisis in our history, the Civil War, and therefore, you know, anyone who is interested in American history has to think about that period in some way or another. But I think also Lincoln seems to uh, represent or exemplify things that we think are quintessential about America, things that are central to our own sense of ourselves as a nation. Lincoln is the self-made man. You know, he started in very humble circumstances and became uh, not only uh, economically successful, but of course prominent as a great leader. Um, and he seems to show, therefore, you know, the opportunity that exists in America for people who uh, start in humble backgrounds. Lincoln is a frontiersman, and you know, we often think about the West, the frontier, as kind of the the seedbed of American democracy. Lincoln is a po- politician, and yet he's a politician who acts in a moral manner. I mean, the liberation of the slaves, which is a complicated process, but nonetheless, you know, he's not just acting as someone interested in immediate political gain. So I think it's because of these larger values that people see in Lincoln that we constantly are recurring back to him, you know, trying to find inspiration in Lincoln's life. Now, your answer to the fact that there are so many books on Abraham Lincoln is to have written yet another one. (laughs) I know. Well, you know, uh, you might say, well, it hasn't stopped anyone else. Why should it stop me? But, um, you know, I wrote this book for two reasons, I guess. One is, you know, I'm a scholar of 19th century history. I I hadn't really written that much about Lincoln, but I've written about that era. I wrote about the pre-Civil War period, the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Um, and so Lincoln's been on my mind for a long time, but also uh, I became, how shall I put this, uh, dissatisfied with much of the literature that's out there right now about Lincoln. Unfortunately, lately, there's a tendency in a lot of the books on Lincoln to sort of remove him from historical context, you know, to just to study Lincoln without all the pressures upon him, the different connections he had. You know, uh, it's all self-referential. If you want to understand Lincoln's actions about slavery, you look at his career as a lawyer. In other words, to study Lincoln, all you have to do is know Lincoln. And my feeling is, no, Lincoln must be placed in the context of his era. And that's one of the things I try to do in this book, is to show how his views fit or don't fit with other people's thinking about slavery, how the changes in his views sort of reflect changes in American society altogether. So I felt there was room for a, for another approach to Lincoln, even though there is uh, all that literature out there. Well, your book is a fascinating read for many reasons. First of all, it just uh, it is filled with such a compelling narrative. But well, it, thank you. It, it's also so rigorously um, honest in, in terms, I think, of your own struggle to understand Lincoln and of our common struggle to understand him. And as you begin the book, you talk about two uh, – Two unhelpful ways to look at Lincoln, and, and on the issue of slavery, you mentioned one: this kind of idealized idea that uh, that, that Lincoln was was always driven by ideas of racial equality and uh, and emancipation and abolitionism, and, and then on the other extreme, you talk about those who who basically now want to reduce Lincoln to uh, to, to being nothing more than a shrewd political operator, and and you suggest there's another way to look at him, and and that's through the metaphor of growth. 
Yes, and I, I do think that uh, seeing the process of growth is is really the key to Lincoln. But even that is a little complicated. It's, some people have, have argued, well, you know, Lincoln really had no strong views of his own. He's kind of buffeted around by events. People pressure him. I don't think that's quite right. I think really Lincoln had a strong moral compass all the way through his life, but that doesn't necessarily translate into specific action. You know, Lincoln said in the war, I have always hated slavery. And I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. And yet hating slavery doesn't tell you what is viable to do about slavery. And much of his life, Lincoln was kind of casting around for a way to deal with a system that was protected by the Constitution, protected by the laws of all the southern states. Um, you know, you couldn't just say, hey, we're going to get up and Congress will abolish slavery. There was no possible way Congress could have done that. Uh, so he came up with various plans for gradual emancipation, for compensation, paying slave owners for, for their slaves in order to um, uh, get their consent. Uh, and, and so, you know, and but later, of course, during the Civil War, he moves toward completely different positions. So, um, you know, so I think this question of growth is uh, is really the way to see how Lincoln, in a sense, evolves into greatness. It's not that he just began he wasn't born with a pen in his hand ready to emancipate all the slaves. He had to sort of develop into that position under the pressure of events and under the pressure of political changes and war and, you know, all the things that are going on in his life. Now, one of the things you left off that list is something to which you've given considerable attention, and, and that is that Lincoln was, throughout most of his life, at least uh, willing to entertain the idea of colonization. Oh, absolutely. He was more than willing. He was a I was quite surprised when I found, and no one had actually mentioned this before, that he was a member of the board of directors of the Illinois Colonization Society. So that's not, not, not a casual thing. You know, he's an official of this organization. Colonization at that time meant encouraging or maybe forcing, although Lincoln always said it had to be voluntary, encouraging African Americans when free to leave the United States, to go to Africa, to go to Haiti, to go to Central America. For much of his life, Lincoln could not quite conceive of the United States as a biracial society. He thought black people could not really exist as free people in the United States and enjoy their rights. He thought they were entitled to the basic rights of mankind, uh, you know, as outlined in the Declaration of Independence, but not in the United States. And again, you see this evolution by the end of the Civil War. Uh, he uh, accepts the notion, of course, they are going to be here. They're going to be a new laboring class in the United States once free. He thinks they deserve basic rights in the United States. So that's another shift in his view from seeing blacks as not really fully American to coming to see them as an intrinsic part of this society. The honest lens you put on Lincoln, and again, putting him in the context of his times, and uh, and that as an historical uh, act of, uh, of integrity is just absolutely necessary and, and, and yet difficult to achieve. I have to tell you, when I arrived at page 224 of your book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and I read about the meeting he had on August the 14th, 1862, with a delegation of, uh, of black Americans who came to see him, and I, I read what he said. I, I felt like I almost didn't know the man. Yeah. You're referring, of course, to this meeting where he meets with a small delegation of African-American leaders from Washington, D.C., and that is where he most publicly puts forward this idea of colonization. In fact, he says to them, look, 
you people, your presence here is the cause of the civil war. He says, you, your people are suffering. I'm, I don't have the words right in front of me. You know, the greatest injustice any people ever suffered. Well, that's a pretty strong condemnation of slavery. And yet he then goes on, there is a prejudice here that will prevent you from ever enjoying your rights. Whether it is right or wrong, I will not say. So he's willing to condemn slavery, but he's not willing to condemn the racial prejudice that uh, he says is powerful in the United States. So he says it's best for us to be separated. Now, the thing is, this was part of this plan Lincoln had in 1862 for, as I said, gradual compensated emancipation, that is paying the owners for the loss of their slaves, plus colonization. The problem is it didn't work because the slave owners were not willing to give up their slaves, even when you paid them for them. And the blacks were not willing to leave the country. So both groups that he's appealing to said, no, I'm sorry, Lincoln, we don't accept your plan. And then he begins to say, well, I need another plan. You know, <laughs> this plan is not working. And I think that's it's in that summer of 1862 that Lincoln really begins to rethink what policy towards slavery ought to be and sort of moves down the road toward immediate abolition without colonization. Because after he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he never mentions colonization again. That That's sort of now put to the side. So, yeah, that meeting is certainly one of the more shocking events of his career. And uh, there's no reason to uh, deny it or to mitigate it. You know, I mean, some, some of the people who write about Lincoln don't even mention it because it doesn't fit with their image of Lincoln. But nonetheless, he moves away from that as the Civil War uh, goes along. Now, when you look at Lincoln in the presidency, and and just consider those those brief years, but most crucial years of our nation's history, how does he get in the presidency, in the White House, from where he was on the question of slavery in, uh, in say, 1860, uh, to where he ends up with the Emancipation Proclamation? And in, in, in historical perspective, that's an incredibly short amount of time for well, such a is. massive uh, shift. Absolutely. You know, really, the, the Civil War begins in April 1861, and within a year and a half, he has issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, warning the, the South that if they don't come back, he's going to free their slaves. And of course, they don't. And so January 1st, 1863, he decrees uh, emancipation. But, you know, um, Lincoln once said, I do not claim to have controlled events. Events have controlled me. Uh, that may be not 100% accurate, because Lincoln did have this strong anti-slavery sentiment. But I think what he's saying is, look, the crisis develops, and there are all these things that are pressuring him. There is the the failure of of the military. You know, by the middle of 1862, the North is not winning the war. Fighting the war while trying to protect slavery is doesn't seem like a very viable uh, uh, option anymore. Um, slavery is beginning to disintegrate. Black people are running away from the plantations to Union lines. Wherever the Union army comes, the slaves start running to them. And that puts this question on the national agenda. The need for soldiers, you know, that at the beginning of the war, they don't allow black men into the army, but increasingly there's a need for black, so, you know, more and more soldiers. And Lincoln, you know, in the Emancipation Proclamation, for the first time, they invite African-American men to join the Union Army, which um, is a major shift. So there's all these pressures working upon him in the war itself uh, to move toward this much more dramatic attack on slavery. 
Abraham Lincoln himself spoke of the mystic chords of memory. Looking back in time, looking back through the decades, it's difficult to come to terms with a man who is so remote to us and yet so immediately in front of our eyes as is Abraham Lincoln. Professor Foner has done us a service in this conversation. He's helped us to understand, also in the book that he's written, that what we're looking at here is a man who has been misunderstood, a man who is contested territory, a man who is decisive in terms of the events of his day, and yet a man who is also in motion, and that includes intellectual motion. When we think about how to understand an individual in his times, we need to come to terms with the fact that biography is never simply an account of a man or a woman, the times, their, their course of study, their, their intellectual development and, and their decisions, their life and birth and death and all the particulars that are listed in a biographical article. What we're looking at here is an individual whose brain, whose soul is in motion. Rarely do we have such deep questions about that progression as we have in the case of Abraham Lincoln. When we come back, I want to talk to Professor Foner about Abraham Lincoln in a theological perspective. Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood once described Abraham Lincoln as the theologian of American anguish. Professor Foner, when you think of Abraham Lincoln and we try to understand the man, where did he come up with his worldview? You you mentioned that he was very unorthodox uh, theologically. Uh, His own religious beliefs are, are very difficult to come to understand, but he was driven by this intense moralism. How do you put all that together? Yeah, you know, the the problem, one of the problems with understanding Lincoln is that he doesn't reveal himself very directly. You know, Lincoln did not keep a diary, for example. Uh, we all wish he had, you know, what are his real inner beliefs. Uh, he didn't write very many personal letters. You know, most of the works of Lincoln that are published, and, you know, there's the collected works of Lincoln, but it's all speeches and military orders. There are a few letters, but you know so you 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 don't have you know what he said but you don't have his inner beliefs uh, very often uh so there's a lot of speculation but you know lincoln and the other thing is lincoln is totally self-educated he had one year of formal schooling in his entire life i mean isn't that amazing a guy who developed such a brilliant command of the uh, of the language you know the eloquence Absolutely. and power of his of his statements and yet it's totally self-educated and so how did he educate himself he read widely. Of course, he read the Bible as everyone did. He knew the Bible up and down. He, you know, he quoted the Bible. It, biblical, uh, you know, kind of language and cadences are obviously present in his speeches. But he also read the works of the founders of that generation. And you know, I, his Christianity was, I think, of that late 18th century kind. It was almost a kind of deism. In other words, you know, that God had created the universe and yet didn't really intervene directly in it, you know. So Lincoln didn't believe in, uh, you, you know, uh, a prayer leading to direct uh, divine action or uh, miracles. He once said to a group of clergymen, I think the age of miracles is over. Um, and uh, so his God was a remote one. It wasn't uh, It wasn't the personal, you know, personal Jesus immediately direct, directly connected to him. Um but as the as the war went on, he became more religious. I think in trying to fathom the meaning of this terrible conflict, he began to think of God directly intervening. And of course, at the very end, in his second inaugural, he says, you know, this war is God's punishment on our nation for the sin of slavery. And yet even there, 
he resists the temptation, which must have been very great, to just blame the South. You know, it's very easy to blame the other side. The South has slavery. They're the evil ones. But no, he doesn't say that. It's it's American slavery, not Southern slavery. The whole nation is complicitous in this sin, he says. Uh, A lot of people didn't like his second inaugural for that reason. Northerners didn't want to be told that they were guilty as as well as the South. But so Lincoln has this humility and this uh, you know, way of of thinking beyond the easy, uh, you know, the the easy judgments that so many people at that time, especially in wartime, it's very easy to just blame the other side as the incarnation of evil. Um, where that comes from, you know, is very hard to say because Lincoln doesn't reveal himself very much to to others. When I read that second inaugural address, and I, I go back to it time and again, I, I always find something I've not seen there before. As a theologian, I myself am drawn into that text, trying to understand the man who could speak these words, because involved in, in that language and that entire universe of meaning that he, he brings out, uh, at least to me, so, so unexpectedly in, in that particular context, th- there are some very deep thoughts of, uh, of the most basic questions of existence and, and the kind of things politicians generally don't talk about. No, absolutely. I mean, it was uh it, it is much more like a sermon than a political speech. Uh in my book, I think I quote uh, George Templeton Strong, this diarist who said this is unlike any other state paper I have ever read. You know, it it's just comes out of nowhere. It is deeply philosophical, it's deeply religious, it's profound, and he's he's kind of mulling over for the nation the ultimate meaning of this terrible experience they've all gone through and you know but but he weighs it against the evil of slavery that's what's so amazing about that speech you know he reminds people it's not just the terrible bloodshed of the war it's the 250 years of slavery that lie behind it and so um you know it's a deeply philosophical speech and it puts on the agenda the question of well what is the ultimate responsibility of the nation yeah for slavery you know we can abolish it but do we have any further obligation to try to redress the evil that has been, uh, you know, has, has, has existed in this country? So, yeah, it is a very, very remarkable speech. Lincoln draws from scriptural references, uh, biblical allusions, but, uh, but he argues, even within his, uh, his address, that, that both the North and the South have the Bible, and, and they come to very different conclusions. Both think they have God on their side. But Lincoln has clearly come in this address to understand that slavery is the great evil that a just God must and and will punish, and he right, sees that divine retribution. But he's he's challenging the evil, not the evil, the simple, the simple way of thinking about it, which uh, sad to say, many ministers, both north and south, were prone to at that time. I mean, in the north. The sermons in the North were exactly what Lincoln is not doing, that the South is evil. The South has brought this on the country. Slavery is the South's sin. You know, that's easy when you're fighting a war to just put all sin on the other side. And in the South, of course, slavery was ordained by God, ordained, you know, and and had divine sanction according to uh, their, their outlook. So Lincoln says, yeah, both sides read the same Bible, pray to the same God. Now, he does then have to sort of say, you know, I can't understand a religion that sees it as, a, you know, as moral taking the bread from another man's hand. You know, that's how he sees slavery, right. the theft of labor. He said, but, that, but I'm not going to judge them. If that's their religion, fine. 
But um, it's more than that. Man cannot fathom the will of God. That's basically what he's saying. God has his own purposes in this war. And that, you know, a lot of people like to think that they are directly, they know exactly what the will of God is. And Lincoln is saying, no, let's wait a minute here. You know, we're not so knowledgeable about what the will of God is. One other issue in your book, uh, I just have to, to investigate with you a bit. Going back to Lincoln's early years, in an address he gave to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, he made a statement about how the issue of slavery might be resolved and how the Union might have to confront to the issue. He spoke of the stage being set for the emergence of an ambitious tyrant, a towering genius who would basically be the great emancipator. Mm-hmm. Did he come to see himself in that role? That is a remarkable speech, isn't it, for a guy in his 20s, basically, you know, and he was just a member of the state legislature in Illinois that nobody would look at Lincoln at that point and say, well, this is going to be the man who is going to lead the nation, you know. But Lincoln was a very ambitious person, and there are those who think Lincoln is referring to himself. On the other hand, there are those who say, no, he's referring to his great rival, Stephen A. Douglas, who was already ahead of him politically and warning against a towering genius who would kind of usurp the power of democracy. But I think, yes, eventually Lincoln comes to see himself as the great emancipator. He doesn't begin that way. You know, in a lot of these books which think, oh, he's always ready to abolish slavery all through his life. No, but once he comes to that view, that is how he sees his role in history. And, you know, as as an ambitious man, he understands that this is going to make his name in history. You know, as I mentioned in the book, after the Emancipation Proclamation, he allowed uh, this artist, Carpenter, to live in the White House for about four months, painting this painting, you know, Lincoln presenting the Emancipation Proclamation to the cabinet. In other words, he wants this recorded. He wants the proclamation recorded. He wants him recorded in this paint himself as the emancipator. Um, so, yeah, this he in a sense, he he takes on that role once it happens. He does it, he, and he's unwilling to go back on it. He will never rescind the Emancipation Proclamation, even though there are people demanding that he do so. When Lincoln assumes the presidency under this, the most in, incredibly uh, ominous circumstances imaginable, no president has ever been elected under these circumstances, and, and he walks in already with secession having been declared and and with uh, the Confederacy in revolt, mm-hmm. he does take unto himself extra constitutional powers. And uh, I obviously saw this as a necessity, uh, almost declaring a military government. Right. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I think you're, you're very honest about when you come to the end of the book is that we do not know what Lincoln would have done in this second term. Well, no, of course, he's assassinated a month or so, a month and a half after his inauguration. And of course, it's right on the eve of another great crisis, the crisis of Reconstruction and the question of how to bring the country back together and what is going to be the status of these four million slaves who are now free. Uh, There's a lot of speculation about what Lincoln might have done, but we don't know. And uh, given the fact that he did change dramatically during the war, we can assume he would continue to change in significant ways. But, you know, on the first point, yes, Lincoln, you know, Lincoln said, I have gone beyond the Constitution. He didn't say I violated the Constitution. He said, in a sense, you know, the Constitution was did not envision the situation that Lincoln faced when he came into office. This Constitution did not envision, at that point, seven states seceding from the Union. 
It did not envision some states waging war against the federal government. So the Constitution, he said, didn't really provide very good direction on how the president ought to respond to that. And he took action that he frankly said was not necessarily warranted by the Constitution, but was necessary to preserve the Constitution. He said, shall we let the whole government go to pieces rather than violate one law? I think he's talking there about the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, which he does right at the beginning of the war for certain areas. And, you know, it's very unclear whether that's really authorized in the Constitution, the president suspending the writ of habeas corpus. It seems the Constitution says Congress has the right to do that. But Lincoln says, look, this was necessity. I, I could not let the, the government fall apart. So, you know, he, he shows you how war exalts the power of the president, which we have seen many times in our, you know, in our own lifetime. You've spent an incredible amount of your time, invested a great deal of your life in, in writing this book. Now, having accomplished this project, what do you hope the the impact of this book will be? Not, not just looking back at the 19th century, but trying to figure out America in the 21st century. Well, you know, uh, maybe uh, I don't want to put too much uh, weight on what the book might accomplish. I, I do hope it, it, it inspires people to think in new ways about the Civil War. But the thing is, as we said a while ago, the issues of that era are still in our society today, the issue of race relations, you know, that, that, that all the complications of that, the issue of the president's power in wartime, you know, that, that's a current issue right now. Uh, the question of the, the connection between political leaders and social movements, you know, there's an abolitionist movement out there. It's not politicians, but it's having an effect on politics and Lincoln is having to uh, respond to them. So, you know, I hope that when people read this book, they will it will enable them to think in, you know, in more uh, creative ways about some of the problems that our society faces today. Not that we can transpose the answers from 150 years ago directly onto the society today. But I mean, I think some of the values that are reflected in Lincoln and in that era are still values we ought to try to uh, live up to in this society. One final question, Professor. If you were speaking to uh, an audience, as you are now, uh, predominantly uh, comprised of American evangelicals, try, trying to figure out uh, how to understand these things, is there any particular word you would have for, for, for this audience on, on that question? Well, I, you know, I, I, I would have to, in that sense, say, you know, I'm not, I'm not as familiar as perhaps I should be with all the beliefs of uh, American evangelicals, uh, although, of course, I respect them and their long-term commitment in many cases to social justice in this country. Uh, and, um, you know, but I, I think the, the key here is to think about what, you know, what our obligations are as citizens to each other. And Lincoln is thinking about that. And who is an American? And you know, he, he grows and he comes to accept African-Americans who he previously hadn't really thought of as being genuinely American as, you know, full members of the society who deserve the protection of the society. And, you know, I think it's that openness and that, you know, why, you know, broad view of what this society is that I would hope that anybody, whatever their religious uh, uh, beliefs are, can, can, you know, continue to hold that what makes this society a very special place.
The publication of Eric Foner's book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, affords American evangelicals an opportunity to think through some of the big questions about the meaning of our lives, about how to understand biography, how to put an individual in a historical context, and how to use the available data and the later different levels of interpretation to come to an understanding not only of what that life meant, but what our lives mean. When people ask me what I like to read most, when they know how much I love books, I often tell them that if I'm reaching for a book just when I have a few moments or a few hours, I'm most likely going to grab an historical biography. I'm not sure why it is so, but I'll tell you that biography has always had an enormous tug upon the human psyche. There is a desire in us to try to understand ourselves as we come to terms with the lives of others. Now, in the course of my reading of biographies, I've read some that I thought were deeply worthwhile and others that were trivial and unhelpful. Rarely have I read a biography that has stretched me quite as much as this one. Eric Foner's book, The Fiery Trial, Getting at Abraham Lincoln and the Ordeal of Slavery, requires us to get inside the mind of an individual insofar as it's possible. And the point here is that with Abraham Lincoln, as Professor Foner has so well articulated, it's difficult to get into that mind because he conceals himself. But we can't understand America, and as Americans trying to think about our own times, we can't get past Abraham Lincoln. And that's why we're drawn to him again and again, and without apology, why we should give attention to a book like this and the issues that it raises. It was in that second part of the conversation with Professor Foner that I got some of the, at some of the issues that, that I thought were most important. I want to know how it is that Abraham Lincoln, this rail splitter, this, this man born into a, a very rural setting in Kentucky, a, a man who was shaped by his own ability to teach himself without the benefit of any formal education. I want to know how he came to struggle with the greatest moral crisis this nation has ever endured. How is it that this man, when you draw a line from Kentucky to Washington, D.C., how can this man in the 19th century stand and give that oration we know as the second inaugural address? As I told Professor Foner, I go back to that address time and and again. I, I go back because I am drawn into a mind of an individual who can articulate with such profound moral insight this incredibly, almost unspeakable tragedy of slavery but not just of slavery, of racism. One of the the achievements of Professor Foner in this book is to demonstrate that in the mind of Abraham Lincoln, the issues of slavery and racism were not one issue. The, The question of slavery and the question of race, these were divisible in Abraham Lincoln's mind in ways that, frankly, are morally excruciating to us. Now, I was raised in the South, and as I came to learn about Abraham Lincoln, as I read about him and was taught about him, as I picked up the lore and the language about Abraham Lincoln from my grandparents and extended family and all the rest, I discovered that there was an awkwardness among many Southerners in talking about Lincoln. And then when I would talk to people from the North, it was clear that they identified themselves with Lincoln in a way that I found artificial and often ill-founded. The reality is that Abraham Lincoln is still an enigma to us. As a theologian, I want to know how a man who was so unorthodox, to say the least, adds Professor Foner in his book, this was not a man who was an orthodox Christian at all. There is absolutely no evidence that Abraham Lincoln was in any way recognizably a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The data that we have would indicate that Abraham Lincoln, if we're going to place him in a theological context, would have to be identified as a deist. 
Now, there's also good evidence, as we follow the progression of Abraham Lincoln's mind, that his deism grew into a deeper moralism, a moralistic deism, by the time that he ended his life in that tragic assassination. What we come to understand is that Lincoln began to see that there was a God of justice and righteousness whose ways were inscrutable. They were, they were, not, they were not accessible to the human imagination. Human pride would lead both sides in the Civil War to claim that God was on their side. But Abraham Lincoln was convinced that in the end, God was on the side of what was right. And by the time he came to the middle of the Civil War, he was certain that the awful tragedy of slavery was the reason for the war, the reason for the sectional dispute, the reason for this great tearing asunder of the nation that he loved. I have to wonder, as a Christian theologian, what kind of man Abraham Lincoln would have been what kind of moral vision he would have brought to his office had he looked at the world through the Christian biblical worldview. But I do want to say that as I come to understand Abraham Lincoln, I also have to go back to the understanding that I understand the world to be held in the power of a sovereign God. I believe, unlike Abraham Lincoln, in a God who rules over his creation. Abraham Lincoln did not have to find a deep meaning in every event, in every struggle, in every occurrence. It's presumptuous for us to believe that we as Christians can come to an immediate understanding of what God is doing in every event, in every occurrence, in every crisis. But we do know this. God is working his purposes in ways that are far more direct than Abraham Lincoln was willing to understand, far more judgmental than even Abraham Lincoln in the second inaugural address was able to articulate. We look back to Abraham Lincoln and we are left with a host of questions. What about this man who, in the name of preserving liberty, took upon himself uh, extra constitutional authority? What about this man who seemed to be protean at so many points? He could shape himself into whatever was necessary by the times. But a man who was also driven by an inflexible conviction. A man who could grow. That's the metaphor that Professor Foner uses. Could grow not only in office, as is so often the case of our description now, but throughout his lifetime. A man who was clearly, by his own words, an, an opponent and enemy of slavery from the beginning, but one who only gradually moved into a position of making slavery the issue of the war. This was a man who, at many points, even during the war, wanted a gradual emancipation, was looking at working emancipation through voluntary efforts in the border states, was seeking to colonize African Americans back to Africa or even to the Caribbean, a, a man who was seeking in his own way to find out how the nation might compensate slaveholders for the loss of their property. But then you come to the realization that Abraham Lincoln, by the time he was reelected to office, having signed the Emancipation Declaration, was absolutely, absolutely not only proclaiming the end of slavery, but a new way of being an American. Now, one of the issues that comes in the, the honesty of Professor Foner's book is the fact that even though Abraham Lincoln became the avowed enemy of slavery, he was a racist to the end. Now, why do I say that? It is not to heap scorn upon Abraham Lincoln from the distance of well over a century. It was indeed last year that we celebrated and marked the bicentennial of his birth. Now, I mention that to remind those of us who are Christians that we understand we live in a Genesis 3 world. And every single human being, every single man or woman, no matter as judged by history, as great or small, is a man or a woman who is caught in a web of self-deception, 
a, a web of lies and a web of rebellion against a holy and righteous God. The reality is that Abraham Lincoln deserves an understanding and affirmation of his greatness, not only in American history, but in the history of, of the world, insofar as we come to understand it. We cannot come to terms with our times without coming to terms with Abraham Lincoln. But when it comes to a sin like racism, we come to understand that Abraham Lincoln was stuck in his times, stuck in his prejudices, and stuck in his worldview. The only rescue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to come to understand that racism is not something that can be solved in purely secular terms. The antidote to racism is not political or ideological. It's the understanding that every single human being is equally made in the image of God. You can only wonder what would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had survived and served a second term. There are a host of political, historical, and constitutional questions about how he would have presided over the process of Reconstruction. But we do know this. We can't understand ourselves. We can't understand our times without coming to terms with the rail splitter with Abraham Lincoln. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. I hope you'll go to my website at albertmiller.com for a host of resources there available to you. I also hope you'll listen to my other podcast, The Briefing, available Monday through Friday. It's an analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. Keep thinking. Until next time, this is Albert Moeller.